Tonight we're starting a new uh, study, a new Bible study. We're going to be looking at the, uh, for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at the epistles of John. Not the gospel of John, but just the epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And uh, we're going to be looking at those. The 2nd and 3rd John are much shorter. Most of our time is going to be obviously in 1st John. Tonight what we're going to do, as, what I, as I usually do when we start a new uh, uh, study on a particular book of the Bible, we're going to be looking at some introductory material. We're going to be talking about the context of things because understanding the context of things often is a, is a big part of the key to unlocking what, what is being said in the passage. And our goal, anytime we look in the Bible, anytime we read the Word of God, anytime we study the Word of God, our goal is not to go into it and say, okay, what does this mean to me? You know, we, people have done that for years in these little small groups or whatever, but that's that is not Bible study. What we want to know is, what was the writer trying to say? And when we understand what the writer is trying to say, then we can make per personal application to, uh, to ourselves and our lives. So, uh, so the, the context of everything is very important. Not just the context in the sense of the context of Scripture, that you, that you don't take one verse out of context, but also... Understanding the context of circumstances, the context of the historical times and culture in which the writer is writing. All of those things can play a part in helping us understand it. So that's what we're going to be doing tonight. We're going to begin, uh, first of all, by looking at the authorship. And, and I know you, you read that and say, well, it says right up right there, it's 1 John. Well, the, the problem is, in the book of 1 John, the author never actually identifies himself. So we're not told you know, the, the standard procedure back in those days, you see it often with Paul's letters. They would, it, it actually makes a lot more sense the way, than the way we write letters to me. But they would start off with a, with a, by saying, this is from Paul, and this is to who and whoever, and this is what I'm writing about. And so in the very first sen sentence or two, you would know who's writing, who it's intended for, and what their message is. Uh, we don't do that. We just say, dear so-and-so, and then you get a letter and you have to flip all the way to the end to figure out who it came from, right? But, uh, but the, <clears throat> the author of, of 1 John did not do that. However, there are some really important clues, uh, one of which is the church tradition, the early church fathers. <coughs> Excuse me. But one of those things is, the similarities between the Gospel of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are, are so remarkable that it would actually be difficult to argue that these writings were done by two different people. The, the syntax, the, the vocabulary, the, the thematic developments, they're all so strikingly similar that even the inexperienced reader can tell that the writer of the Gospel of John penned the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Now 2nd and 3rd John uh, John is, identifies himself just simply as the elder, uh, but we'll get into that another time. But, but be, when we look at these and you see the similarities and some of the language that's duplicated, um, we realize that whoever wrote the Gospel of John wrote these. Therefore, once we can determine the author of the, of the Gospel of John, then we automatically identify the writer of these letters. So let's we're going to begin, actually, even though we're not studying the Gospel of John, we're going to go back to the Gospel of John to help us uh, establish the, the authorship of this. Clearly, who, whoever wrote the Gospel of John was an eyewitness of Jesus and was among the very first to follow him, one of the very first disciples to follow him. Um, and so we look at the Gospel of John. The writer of this Gospel calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. See, so you look at the Gospel of John, and now we still have a problem because the author just calls himself the one whom Jesus loved. And, and it's, uh, you know, uh, it makes it, we got to figure out what, who he's talking about. So let's look at some of these things where it says this. John 13, 23 says, one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. That's at the, at the Last Supper. And then in John 19, when Jesus <clears throat> saw his mother there, this is at the foot of the cross, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. Then in John 20, verse 2, it says, So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one, who, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, 
and we don't know where they put him. And then verse 20, uh, chapter 27, 21, verse 7, Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. And then same chapter, verse 20, Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was one uh, who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and, and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? Okay, so we know that the, the author here is, was one of the 12 disciples. And, and among those disciples, he was one of those who was very close to Jesus. Now, when you look at the synoptic gospels, which the, the synoptic gospels are just are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is a category all by itself because he approaches the gospel in a whole different way. But the synoptic gospels reveal that, that three disciples were very close to Jesus. Anybody know those three names? Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Right. All right. So that tells us that, um, it, 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 that the, the author is going to be one of those three. Now, Peter we know could not have been the author of, this, of the Gospel of John for various reasons. Number one, the author of the Gospel, who says the, the, the one whom Jesus loved, it, we're told in some of those verses we just read that at the Last Supper, he spoke with Peter. So if it was Peter, it would Peter be speaking with Peter. So that doesn't make any sense. He also, we also know that this particular disciple raced Peter to the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. So if it's Peter, then it's Peter racing Peter. And then also, after the resurrection, he walked with Jesus and Peter along the shore of Galilee after Jesus' appearance to them following his resurrection. So we know that it's obviously someone else besides Peter. So that narrows it down to James and John. Here's how we know how we eliminate James. It's really actually very easy. Uh, by the time the gospel was written, James had already been killed as a martyr. It's hard to write a gospel if you're dead. That's just my personal observation. And so the, the writer must have been John, the son of Zebedee, who shared a close relationship with Jesus. Uh, most likely it was also the same John who was with Andrew <clears throat> when they uh, became the, the first to follow Jesus. He was also the one uh, who was known to the high priest and therefore gained access for himself and Peter into the courtyard of the place where Jesus was on trial and and, uh, and it was this one disciple that really stood by Jesus during his crucifixion and, and walked with Jesus after his resurrection. He's the only one that we know of for sure was standing there near the foot of the cross because Jesus saw him standing there and said to his mother, hey, here's your, here's, here's your new sons, John, here's your new mother. So, um, <clears throat> so this is the same disciple that wrote the gospel that bears his name. So, so there's very strong evidence that 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John were written by this same disciple. And uh, his, his, the author's proclamation as an eyewitness is, is just as pronounced in the first letter as it is in the gospel. In, in 1 John, the author claimed to be among those who heard, saw, and even touched the eternal word made flesh. So it's someone who was with him, who, who lived and traveled with this man named Jesus, First uh, John one one says that which excuse me that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our our eyes which we have looked at and our hands have touched this we proclaim concerning the word of life and again here, here's another tie into the Gospel of John what does the very first uh, part of John chapter one say the first chapter says in the beginning was the word. And here we have in John, 1 John 1, 1, again, he's tying it in very closely. This we proclaim concerning what? The word of life. So we see the, 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 the language that he's pulling into it. And it's very obvious that it's from the same school of thought, the same uh, uh, perspective that the gospel of John was written, written. And we know that the writer of this was someone who was there and actually touched Jesus physically. Now that's uh, we don't know it yet, and we're going we're gonna to understand in a few minutes that that's actually very significant. Uh, and there's a reason why John put in that very first verse that we saw, that we heard, and that we touched him. That, that the idea, the fact that he touched Jesus 
is very significant because of what's going on in the situation that caused that the, him to write this letter. So anyway, because of this, we know that his testimony is firsthand. He was an eyewitness to the greatest person to, to ever enter into human history. And, and surely, maybe others like Peter knew Jesus as well as John, but no one knew Jesus better than John. He knew Jesus just as well as Peter did. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of 2nd and 3rd John, this author identifies himself as the elder, and that probably points to John's position at the time as the oldest living apostle and the chief leader among the churches in the Roman province of Asia. And uh, th this is also kind of uh, reinforced by the way that John, the author of 1st John, addresses the believers because he calls them, uh, he refers to them as his dear children. So it has this is this father-child mentality, is this mentor-mentee uh, sense. So, uh, frankly, there's just no compelling reason to doubt that the Apostle John is the author of these epistles. There are some scholars that disagree with that, but the consensus is that there's just no reason to doubt it. Now, these books were written in about A.D. 90 from the city of Ephesus. Now, John and the other apostles were probably forced to leave Jerusalem because remember, that's where the church really started on the day of Pentecost. And then it was sometime after that persecution broke out. Uh, but they were, they were probably forced to leave by, by uh, at least by A.D. 70 due to the mounting persecution. And it's possible that John uh, gathered with some of the Samaritan converts. You remember in the book of Acts, the great revival in, the, in Samaria that took place. And, and uh, so John may have, there's some... Um, uh, tradition that says that he spent some time there uh, along with some, other, some of John the Baptist's followers uh, where they continue to preach the word. But sometime thereafter, we know, we don't know exactly when, but it was probably no earlier than A.D. 70, they migrated to the Roman province of Asia, uh, what, what was called Asia Minor, uh, and, and he began a sex, successful ministry among the Gentiles. Uh, John then, in turn, after that, that's when he wrote the gospel of John, and he wrote it for these Gentile believers somewhere around A.D. 80 to 85. Um, and he wrote it for them, and th this is why he used language like, in the beginning was the Word, because the Word had, that, the, the word logos, which is a translated word, had a, 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 a specific significance in Greek thought and philosophy, and he was tying it together and trying to present to them um, the, who Jesus was in a way that they would understand it. But sometime after that, sometime later, some of the members of the community of the churches that he was leading, uh, there, they, they, there was a group, some of the members left to form a rival group. And John, therefore, in response to that, wrote a letter, which is First John, in order to deal with this crisis that's going on. And, and in the process, he was wanting to encourage the believers to remain in Christ and, and remain in the fellowship with, with, of, of the church and also to den denounce those who had left. And he probably wrote that, wrote this book, uh, around 80, 95 to, to 90. Second John must have been written in, in the same time period, not very long after that, because he actually, in, the second, in second John, deals with the very same issue that he deals here and he, in warning the believers not to receive the traveling teachers who were spreading the false teachings of those who had left the church. And then third John was probably a little bit later, not a lot later, but a little bit later, but it has some of the similar characteristics because John warned a man named Gaius about another man named Diotrephes who had evidently been affected by those who had left the church. So... Uh, although there are no references in the gospel or the three letters concerning where they're written, according to the earliest traditions of the church, John wrote all four books from the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was, uh, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this part, but it was located at the intersection of two ancient uh, major overland routes, and, uh, and it was at the very edge of Asia Minor. And, and just to give you an idea of what Asia Minor means, that's modern-day Turkey. So that's the, the, the uh, area. And, and Ephesus had easy access to the Aegean Sea. And because of these factors, it had become a, a political and a commercial and a religious center. And it, and it was a, 
it was very much a key city in the Roman Empire. So, uh, and, and that's where Paul, you, you know, he kind of moved his center of operations to different spots. Uh, but he, he, you know, he started off in Antioch of Syria. Then he moved to um, uh, up, up kind of to Corinth. And then he, he, then he moved down to Ephesus. And that was, that was the last. And, so because, and that was because it was such an influential city. Uh, Paul founded the church in Ephesus in AD 52 on his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. Um, the, the church after that had flourished and they had become a very strong spiritual community under the ministry of Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. And then later during Paul's first Roman imprisonment, and you can read about that uh, in the book of Acts as well, it was during that, that uh, first imprisonment that he wrote the letters, the letter to the Ephesians. And the, then, then, then later on, the same church is described in Revelation chapter 2. Remember the first three chapters? There are these letters to seven churches, all of them in Asia. And, and one of those was the, in the, city, the church in the city of Ephesus. And that's where God commends the Ephesian believers for their hard work and for their patient endurance However, God also warns the Ephesians about forsaking their love for Him, and He calls them to repent and do the things you did at first. And we're not going to take time. Maybe another time we'll do a study on that, but that's just providing context about where it's written. And after writing these letters from Ephesus, John was, uh, that was later, he, after he did this, that was when he was exiled by the Roman government to the island of Patmos. And it was while he was in exile on the Isle of, island of Patmos, that Jesus appeared to him with a great revelation that we know, it, the revelation of Jesus Christ, the book of Revelation. And then he, he wrote that, and I hesitate using the, he wrote it down. He just wrote down what, he, what had been revealed, what he saw. Uh, and that's where the book of Revelation falls, it comes in. And then later, he returned to Ephesus for his final years and um, probably died somewhere around 100 A.D. So, all that said, that's all historical and uh, con contextual. But what was the purpose of writing this? I kind of al alluded to this already. But John wrote to reassure Christians in their faith and to counter false teachings. Uh, I think one of the, uh, a great verse to sum up what he was saying is 1 John 5.13. He says, I write things, these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, we're going to get into it in a few minutes, but you're going to understand just how weighty that is and how significant the way he chose to word that verse is for, for, for them. But one of the reasons that prompted the, his first epistle here was that, the, the, that a heretical uh, faction had developed within the church. False teachers arose uh, and they claim to have equal spiritual power as John. Actually, they, they actually claim to be, have, have, have something greater than John. And as prophets, they said they were speaking by the Spirit. Now, here's the thing. You know, in our day, we have the written Word of God. So if somebody stands up and says, I am speaking by the Spirit, and they say something that is not in line with the Word of God, we have a really easy way to determine if somebody is actually being uh, influenced or anointed or, 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 or if they're saying a word that was given by this Holy Spirit because it's always going to agree with the word. But you understand that when John was writing this, they, they didn't have a canon of scripture per se. So in, in, a, in a situation such as they were in, in a community that relied on the Holy Spirit to teach them uh, all things, because that's what Jesus said the Holy Spirit would do, they're relying on him to testify about Jesus, to guide them into all truth. Those were all things Jesus said this was what the Holy Spirit would come to do. Uh, well, then these people come along and say, hey, no, John's not speaking by the Spirit. We are. And so this controversy over who speaks by the Spirit caused considerable confusion among the members because they didn't have a written Bible like you and I do to be able to go down, go to it and say, well, who's right? Who's wrong here? And, 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 and that was actually part of the uh, cessationist, uh, secession, not cessationist, secessionist strategy to deter, undermine John. 
You know, basically they said, listen to us. We're the spiritual elite. Uh, we, not John, speak by the Spirit. Now they had, and I'm going to just give you a little foreshadow here, and we'll get into it in a minute, but they had roots in what was known as Gnosticism. Um, and, and, and Gnosticism taught the, the whole idea. It actually, the word uh, comes from, uh, well, I'll get to that in a minute. But it, they taught that one had to have special knowledge in order to be saved. And we'll, I'll, explain, I'll explain a little more about that in a little bit and tell you why they thought that. And, and, uh, but th- this struggle for influence and for teaching authority over the churches led to a schism among the churches, a division. Um, and so these, these Gnostic uh, false teachers left the community, but they didn't leave them alone. They continued to try to influence the remaining members to join them. And they were, they were basically, they were traveling the circuit of these house churches in an attempt to spread both their teaching and their influence. And, and in, the, in response, John is also sending out his representatives and, and he's even himself contemplating visits to the churches. And at least one church leader, Diotrephes, Diotrephes that I mentioned earlier, he sees the opportunity to declare his house church completely independent of John and we're told he, uh, that Diotrephes loves to be first. And he has refused to recognize John's authority. And he's attacked him maliciously. And, he's, and he won't admit into his church any of John's representatives. And he says that he has the power to excommunicate. Literally, the word means to throw out those who, who want to welcome representatives from John. Um, now, this, this heresy that caused this schism has been identified by scholars as something called docetism. And anybody ever heard of docetism before? All right, so we got a couple of you, but this is new information. And, and scholars also point to a man named Serinthus as the perpetrator of this specific brand of docetism. docetism. Now, docetism is a belief it denied that Jesus actually had become flesh and blood. That, and, and, and while affirming the deity of Christ, they denied his humanity. Uh, they, they rejected the incarnation, uh, the, the idea that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, which is exactly, I mean, that's a huge part. That's the first chapter of John, and that's what, he, what he's talking about here. Uh, uh, they, they said that they, they denied the flesh and blood man, Jesus, is, is the divine Christ. And they believed that the divine Christ, the eternal Son of God, only appeared and only seemed to be human when he came to this world to be its Savior. Now, this is why John, in the very first verse, says, I touched him. You can't touch a spirit. And so this is why from the very first we have clues here as to what John is doing. And so, but they insisted that he was a purely spiritual being and, and that he, who had nothing but the appearance of having a body. And I'll tell you why they, they came to that conclusion in a moment. But Serinthus is a man who taught a subtler, more dangerous version of, uh, and variant of docetism. He taught that Jesus, first of all, he taught that Jesus had not been born of a virgin. But as uh, he taught that he was just the natural son of Joseph and Mary, although he gave, you know, he, a nod to Jesus said he was more righteous and prudent and wise than, than any other men, man. And so, but he taught that, that after his baptism or basically at his baptism, Christ descended onto Jesus in the form of a dove from the supreme ruler. And, and that then he... Uh, proclaim the unknown father and perform miracles and all the things that took place that was Christ doing those things in the, in the form of this man, Jesus. And, and, uh, and then uh, right before the crucifixion, he says that he, he taught that Christ departed from Jesus and then Jesus, the man, suffered and rose again with, while Christ remained impassable as much as he was a spiritual being. So he was trying to try, find a way to make it where Jesus had a body, but it wasn't, he wasn't really the Christ. He was just used by the Christ. It's just a really convoluted way of thinking. But these beliefs all come from, they arose from Gnosticism, Gnosticism that I mentioned earlier, which was a very 
prevalent belief in the Greek culture. Now, Gnosticism, this is why, this is why they had come to this conclusion. Uh, if you're wondering, why would they even think this? Why would they come to this and say, well, he, was, he didn't really have a body. It just looked like he had a body. And why would this man, Serinthus, go to such great lengths to say that the actual Christ didn't have a body? He just used the body of Jesus, the man, and then, but he, he stayed away from that. Well, here's why. They taught, Gnostics, Gnostics and Gnosticism taught that, that only the spirit was good and that all material things were evil, including the human body. Now, if you believe that, how can God take on a human body? How can God become evil? This is, this is, this is why, and, and given that point of view, any, if, that's what, if that were truth, then any real incarnation would be impossible. They also taught people, and this is where the name comes from, they also taught people that, uh, that, that people could only be saved by having this, some sort of special mystical knowledge. Um, the, the word Gnostic comes from the Greek word nostos, G-N-O-S-T-I-S in the English transliteration. And, and that's related to another word, gnosko, which is very important, often word used in the New Testament. But, but nostos just simply means known. And gnosko means to learn to know, to come to know, to get a knowledge of. So it has to do with knowledge. And that's why Gnostics, they, they believed you had to have special knowledge, comes from nostos. That's where they get the word Gnostics from. Um, and therefore, what was happening here, these false teachers, they were claiming to have found some special mystical knowledge that John didn't have. Now, now, we don't know necessarily that happened here, but in other places and other uh, uh, Christian churches where the Gnostics began to make inroads, what it began to happen was they began to say, the body is evil. I have found this new knowledge where my spirit is clean before God. Therefore, what happens to my body doesn't make any difference because my spirit's clean. And so that they would just be given, they would give themselves to debauchery because, that, because they said it makes no difference. My body is meaningless. I've, I've got this knowledge. I've got this understanding. Um, but uh, we, we, we're not, John doesn't tell us specifically that anything like that happened to that degree, but, um, but they, they believe, they claim that they had this special knowledge. And uh, they were telling other believers that they didn't have uh, their, their, their mystical knowledge and their, their, therefore they were inferior to them. It was really a very elitist teaching. Uh, that was especially attractive to people of some intellectual attainment. And for the ordinary rank and file of Christians, it had far less appeal. Indeed, it was not even intended for them, but rather for an elite of spiritual initiates. And so this was the teaching that was going around, this was, that was making inroads, that was, had caused this schism. And to combat this teaching uh, concerning this special mystical knowledge that only a few of us have, and the rest of you poor souls just don't get it. What, what did John do? He, he makes the word no, from the word gnosko, a huge point in this book. And he writes about things that you know. He writes about your knowledge. What's he doing? He's saying, okay, these folks say they have this special knowledge. Let me tell you that it's not some hidden knowledge that you, that you have to attain to. I'm going to tell you what you already know. I'm going to read a few of them. And this is just a few of them. I've got quite a few I'm going to read. But, but this is just a few of them. And I, I started to count the number of times the word gnosko was used. And then finally I just said, this is taking too long. Because <laughs> it's just in there all over the place. So this idea of knowledge and knowing is a huge part of understanding what John is trying to say through 1 John. Uh, let me read a few of them. 1 John 2, verses 3 through 5. We know that we have come to know Him. He actually uses that word twice. We gnosko, know, uh, that, uh, that we have come to gnosko Him. We, we know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. So he's saying, how do you know if you have this special knowledge, this knowledge that we're talking about, if you obey His commands? The man who says, I, I know Him, who's he talking about there? No, no, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not, not the 
I know him part, but the man who says, who's the man who says? He's talking about these false teachers. Because they'd come in and say, oh, I know him in a way that you don't. So the man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. So this is a direct attack on the false teachers who were claiming this special knowledge, but they weren't living according to what Jesus taught. Um, but, but verse 5, but if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Uh, 2.11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness is blinding him. Again, he's talking about the person who said, I have been enlightened. I have this knowledge. But, it, but, but that knowledge caused them to separate from the body and look down on other, other believers. Therefore, they're not acting in love. And he's saying, whoever hates his brother, they're not enlightened. They're walking in darkness. That's what he's saying. Uh, Verses 20 and 21, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you, not just a few of you, not a select few, but all of you know the truth. I do not write to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 10, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not. Uh, love does not love his brother. So again, he's saying, these people are saying you have to have this special knowledge. You're not really in. He's saying, no, 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 that's not the truth. This is how you know. You know this already. Verse 14, chapter 3. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. So you, you, I'm going to read a few more, but you begin to see here there's another common theme of love that comes up. And we often associate First John with, with love, and it is a huge part of it, but it really comes from the fact uh, of, uh, it, really, it really is tied together with this idea of knowing. Verse 19, chapter 3, this then is how we know that we belong to the truth. This is these other people are saying, oh, I've got special knowledge. That's how you, you can, you can, you can uh, belong to the truth. And John is saying, no, no. This is how you know that, that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. Verse 24, those who obey his commands live in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Chapter 4, verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. Um, verse uh, 13, chapter 4, we know that, he, that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Chapter 5, verse 13, we read this one earlier. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Verses 18 through 20, we know that anyone born of God, listen, these, these three verses, he lists three different we knows. He says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe and the evil one cannot harm him. That's the first one. The second one, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And the third one is, we know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know who is true, uh, know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. So here, and those, listen, uh, that's a lot of verses already, but that's just, that's, that's not even all of them. That's not all, even all the places where John brings this idea. So these people who were leaving the church to form their own community, were they were probably Gentile converts who had tried to assimilate their Gnostic views with Christianity. Instead of adopting what, what the, the, the Christian viewpoint in theology, they were trying to say, but I like this thing that we, I've always believed this to be true. Let me see how I can make it fit together. And when you do that and you try to, it's called syncretism. When you try to marriage one belief with another, with Christianity, um, when you try to do that, what ends up happening is you really end up with neither one of them. <laughs> and you certainly don't end up with anything that's Christian. And, and this heretical faction within the church or the churches that John was addressing, 
they eventually left the fellowship. And in so doing, John says, and we're going to read about it when we get into the verse by verse. He says that, that leaving exposed the reality that they did not genuinely, genuinely belong to God's family. Nevertheless, even though they left, their false teaching still lingered in the minds of the faithful and, and added to the fact that they were sending out false teachers to the churches to, to try to convert them to their way of thinking and their theology. So John wrote this. Here's the purpose. He wrote this to expose the falsehoods. You know, that's something a lot of times teachers today are afraid to do. They're afraid of hurting somebody's feelings. They're afraid of, you know, well, I don't want to get anybody mad. And, uh, but, but John was, he's, he said, listen, we've got to expose the falsehood. You, you can't proclaim the truth without expo exposing the false. So he wrote to expose the falsehoods. And to bring the believers back to the pure beginning of the gospel and the basics of Christian life. And so he urged his, his readers to, to, to have fellowship with God in the light. He urged them to confess their sins, to, to love God, to love their fellow Christians, to abide in Christ, to purify themselves from worldly lust, to know God personally and experientially, to appreciate the gift of eternal life, to follow the, the spirit of truth and discerning false teachings and to esteem Christ as, as the true God. And uh, you know what? Today, for those who claim to follow Christ, uh, we need a fresh dose of the message of 1 John. Especially when it comes to truth, because we live in a culture that says, hey, there's no such thing as truth. But we need, to, we need a fresh dose of what 1 John is teaching and we, and we need to examine ourselves in light of the basics of Christian faith. Now, let me get to the message. We're gonna, we're, this is the, the last section we're going to deal with tonight. And then next week we'll get into the verse by verse. But he deals with different uh, themes in his message. And the first one is sin. Now, it's, oh, this is, there's, a, there's a specific reason why he introduced this. And we, we love, uh, you know, verses in 1 John where it talks about you know, if, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. But we kind of sometimes separate some of the verses before and after. Now, the way we use that verse is correct. I'm not saying it's incorrect, but I'm saying that if we understand the context and who he's writing, what's going on, then some of the verses around it help make a little more sense to us because he talks about, and I don't have it written down here, but he talks about if anyone says he has no sin. You remember, you remember that verse? It's, it's probably right after it, the 1 John 1.10 probably. Anyway, why would he write such a thing? That's because John's opponents, these uh, people that were influenced by Gnosticism and Docetism, they claimed not to sin. That was a part of Gnosticism. That, uh, and, and, and many of them believed that they had reached such a spiritual pinnacle that they were actually incapable of sinning, having moved beyond that, that possibility spiritually. So John is saying, listen, if you hear anybody claiming to be without sin, you can mark it down. They're a false teacher. That's what he's saying there in that first, uh, ver the first chapter. Uh, th these false teachers are super spiritual Gnostics claiming uh, to be living life with God on a much higher plane than the Christians who remain loyal to John and, and ignoring the fact that the reality is even Christian sin. Isn't that right? Anybody here? Uh, let me just uh, informal poll here. How many of you have sinned in the last week? Okay, all right. And the ones who didn't raise your hand, you probably just did. But that's a different story. Uh, but here's the thing. Sin requires God's forgiveness and Christ's death provides it. And, and so he says, he says to the church, he says, uh, you know, anyone who says that they have no sin, the, the truth of God is not in them. But he says, but if we sin, what do we do? We can, if we confess that sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from unrighteousness. So he's saying, listen, it's true. It's not true that we are sinless, but it's not something you have to lose sleep over because we know that there's forgiveness available for us. Um, and, and, and determining to live according to God's standards in the Bible shows that, that uh, the believer's lives are being transformed. You know, and the truth is, talk is cheap. Uh, 
Reality must be tested by one's relationship with the members of the, of the church community. And, and John urged the believers to know the truth and to live in it. What's the importance for today? Well, importance for us today, obviously, we cannot deny our own sin nature. And we cannot deny that we are above sinning. And we cannot minimize the consequences of sin in our relationship with God. Um, and, and let me just say this. When we talk about uh, maintaining that we're above sinning, we need to be careful. Because sometimes we'll say, oh, no, I know I sin. But then with a specific sin, we might say something like, oh, I would never. Here's what I believe. I believe given the right circumstances, if you, the, the human brain, your brain can justify almost anything. And when you begin to say, I would never, you're putting yourself in a place that's a very, very dangerous place because it's a place of pride. And it's, we need to approach it with humility and saying, listen, I, I know that given the right circumstances and situation, I, I, would be, I could face that temptation. And I've got I've to understand that, that I am vulnerable, therefore I must re rely on Christ. Uh, and uh, another thing for today, we, we need to resist the attraction of sin yet at the same time. So we don't just give in to it because we have forgiveness. We resist it, but then we, when we do sin, we need to confess it to Him. And we need to be honest with ourselves and with God. And we need to admit our sin to Him and live in the freedom of His forgiveness. The next theme is love. I already mentioned that a little bit. One of the primary themes of 1 John is that is this, is that, the, that love for God must, it's not an option, but it must be exhibited in love for others. I cannot say I love God and not love other people. Cannot. John makes it very clear, we're going to see in coming verses and coming weeks, that if I say I love God, but I don't love you, then I'm a liar. I don't love God. I don't even know what, lo what love means. Uh, since, since God is love, think about it this way. Since God is love, all who claim to know God must exhibit that nature in their relationships with others. This, this love that, that we have is evidence that we are truly saved, evidence that His Spirit resides in us. Because He is love, love flows through us. We can love others. That's what happens. So, importance for today. Again, it's easy to talk about love. Isn't it? It's easy to talk about love, uh, but uh, and we, it's easy to talk about how much we love people. But the reality is, as we talked about Sunday, love means putting other people first. Love is a, is a determined decision to, to meet the needs of someone else. It's not a feeling. Love is action, showing others that we care uh, not, not just with words, but with what we do. And to show love uh, means that we, we give sacrificially, we, uh, we give of our time, we give of our money, we give of our resources, whatever we have, we give to meet the needs of others. And so the, the, the challenge for us is to look for tangible ways to express God's love to other people, especially fellow believers. Uh, and, and, and it's tangible ways. Listen, you can tell every sinner you meet, Jesus loves you. But if you don't find a tangible way to love them, they're not going to believe you. Because they don't see any of his love that you're talking about in your life. That's, that's what John talks about. Next theme is truth and error. T teaching uh, that, that, that the body does not matter like, they, like the Gnostics did. False teachers uh, uh, encourage believers to just throw off all moral restraints. They said, because, hey... If you come to this understanding and you stop worrying about the body and just give your spirit, you know, and focus on the spirit, then it doesn't matter what you do. And as a result, people uh, became indifferent to sin. But according to 1 John, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the unique son of God, or that he has come in the flesh is the Antichrist. He used that word. And we're going to learn more about truth and error. The importance for today, God is truth and God is light. So, so the more we get to know him, the better we can stay focused on the truth, the better we can see because we're walking in the light. And many people who claim to have a message from God, they say, I've got the truth. Um, but, but true teachers affirm God's word. And they teach that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And, and you know, there, here's the thing about this, and this is, ties in 
uh, I, I see, it's not, I, I'm not saying it's Gnosticism, but I see shades of this in so much of today's Christian world because, um, because I see people who are, are desperate to get some new revelation, some new knowledge. And, uh, and if somebody, you know, you see them on television or hear them on radio or whatever and watch them on the internet, if they say, I've got this brand new revelation Nobody in 2,000 years of Christianity have, has been able to see this, but I have this new knowledge. Just listen, be, be so careful. Be so careful. Because, um, you know, that, that, is, that is very similar. It's a very similar spirit to what was taking place then, back then with people saying, uh, we're, on a, we're on a different plane and we know things that you don't know. And... Uh, don't be led astray by teaching uh, that, that does not line up with what Scripture says. And so get into the Word. Know what the Word says. You, you can't evaluate teaching if you don't know the Word. Be like the Bereans. Remember what the Bereans did in the book of Acts? Paul would teach all these things. He would talk, tell them the gospel. He would show them from, he would preach a message about how the Old Testament points to Jesus. And what did it say that they did? They went to the scriptures and searched the scriptures to see if what he said was so. Just because something sounds good, don't swallow it hook, line, and sinker because there are a lot of things that sound good, but the reason it sounds good is because it makes much of you and not much of Christ. It's very appealing to the flesh, but search the scripture. Know what it says. And then, and then the, the last one we're going to deal with tonight is uh, he talks about assurance. Several times in the letter, uh, he, he assures the readers that they can know or they can be sure of things. Now, again, this goes to the teachers were saying, we have this revealed mystical knowledge that you don't, you don't know and we're saved and you're not. And so there's this confusion and they don't know what to think. And, and John is saying, no, no, listen. Everything you need to know, everything that needs to be known, you know it, and you can be sure. I, he said, I, I've written these things so that you would know that you are of the truth, that you're the ch children of God. They, he said he wrote these things so that they can know that they belong to him. They can know that they are living in the truth, that they can know that God lives in them, that they can know that God hears their prayers. Not just hope, but they can know these things. Because God is in control of heaven and earth. Right? And because God's word is true, leaders, uh, believers can have assurance of eternal life and victory over sin. What, what's the importance for today? We, we build our confidence by trusting in God's word and in Christ's provision for our sin. There's, there's one solid foundation upon which you can build your life. That is the word of God. And, and we're, no, I'm not talking about worshiping the Bible. I'm just saying, how, where can you find out who Jesus is? What, what can you, where can you find out what he teaches? Where can you find out what it means to be a follower of Christ? It's all there. You, there's nothing you need to live for Jesus outside of what Scripture shows us. The Holy Spirit will make that come alive. The Holy Spirit will use that to point to Jesus. The Holy Spirit will use that to prepare you. The Holy Spirit will do incredible things in your life. Uh, but, but you can have assurance and you can have victory over, over sin uh, be, because these are the things that we know. What's the importance for today? Well, uh, we, well I said we build confidence, trusting in God's word and Christ's provision. Uh, here, the thing is, tough times can bring doubts. I don't know if you've been through that, you know, some of you, everybody I'm looking around, just about everybody here is old enough that you've been through some tough times. And those tough times in the flesh can, can make you begin to doubt. God, where are you? God, what's going on? Why, why is this happening? Of course, we, we talked about it at the end of our study last week on Ruth. We talked about the fact that, that we act as if 
unlocking the key for God's plan, it, it revolves around us and what for us and our lives and what's happening with us. But but his plan goes way beyond us. And so sometimes there are going to be things that he's doing that we just will never see in this lifetime. But we can we can trust him. Uh, but but in those times of doubts, regardless of what's happening around us or what's happening to us, we can be assured of God's presence and, and of God's love and of the fact that, that he, we are in His palm, that He is holding us. If we are in Christ, if we are in Christ, we are safe. If, if you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you, you have eternal life. It's not something that you will have someday in the future. It's not like one day you'll come alive. You have come alive. You're already alive in Christ. And, and God lives in you. The presence of the Spirit is in your life. And and, and you are on your way to experience heaven. So we can live with that assured confidence of the, of the reality of God in our lives. We can do that. Amen. All right. Well, next week we're going to get into, begin with verse 1 of 1 John 1. And, and, uh, and if, if this tonight was boring and dry and dull to you, I understand that because everybody's different. And some people, you know, they're like, I don't like all the background stuff. But, but maybe you're like me. And I just, I love learning these kind of things. But now as you read the first book of 1 John, even this week, be reading it, and you're going to see uh, how many times he uses that word know, and you're going to say, you're going to see how uh, knowing God ties into loving. That if I know God's love, if, that I can know that I know Him because His love is flowing through me. There's so many different ways that he ties it into it, and I think it's going to unlock the book of 1 John for you in a different way to help you understand it. And then we'll get into that next week. But let's pray together. Father, we just thank you for your word, the power that's in your word. And I thank you, God, that we can know, that we don't have to have some special revelation. We don't have to have some special mystical knowledge to be saved. But we know everything that we need to know. And that is that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to this earth, lived in, in the flesh, and he was fully God, he was fully man. And that he gave himself up, that he died, he suffered and died on the cross, was resurrected again on the third day. And as a result of that, because of the, 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 the penalty that was paid on the cross for my sins, I now have life. I now have freedom. I now have hope and I have a future in you. And I know it. I know it. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to walk in that knowledge, to walk in that confidence that, Lord, as we have come in contact with the God of love, help us to live that love out and to, to let people see. So, that our, so it's, it's not just empty words when we say Jesus loves you, but they'll look at our lives and, and they'll see how we are loving them. And it, it will help them to, to see the reality that when we say Jesus loves you, it's true. Because I see it in your life. And I thank you for what you're doing and what you're going to do. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.